Hello and welcome to another episode of the Folklore Podcast Book Club, where we discuss books and chat with authors whose work is of interest to folklore enthusiasts. Today, guest reviewer Hilary Wilson is talking to author David Castleton about his recent book, Church Curiosities, published by Spire Publications. But before we come to that, just a brief announcement. We're making some small changes to the setup of the book club. Now, these won't impact on the content at all or on the way that you listen, but they reflect part of the wider restructuring of the Folklore Podcast Network as we integrate our various projects. We're moving the Folklore Podcast Book Club over to sit within the Folklore Library and Archive. This seems to make sense, as the library will obviously be holding all of the books which we examine, and more, as part of its research content. Episodes will be available to listen to as normal on podcast apps, but we'll move over to the library section of the Folklore Library and Archive on the web. Book reviews will remain on the Folklore Podcast website and will link across to the episodes. The book club will become a predominantly audio-based show, as most of you seem to prefer that format, but we'll still make the video interviews available to those who like to watch them as well. Secondly, just to let you know that we're also broadening our Patreon support pages to encompass everything that we do. So, becoming a Patreon member from just a dollar a month will benefit our entire network of projects, including the Folklore Library and Archive, meaning that Patreon supporters will get bonus content drawn from everything that we do, ultimately better for them too. To join and support our work, you still visit www.patreon.com slash the folklore podcast please follow us on twitter both at folklore pod for the podcast and at library folklore for the library and archives there will be more announcements coming soon thank you here is hillary with david castleton and you can also watch this interview at youtube.com slash folklore podcast uh hi this is hillary wilson with the folklore podcast Today we're speaking with author David Castleton about his book Church Curiosities, Strange Objects and Bizarre Legends. This book is a survey of all of the surprising and unusual artifacts, practices, legends and more surrounding churches throughout the UK and Ireland. So welcome David, why don't you just tell us a bit about yourself? Okay, so um, I'm David Castleton. Um, I write both uh, fiction and non-fiction. So um, I won the 2019 Go Gothic uh, Short Fiction Prize, one of my short stories. I've also got a novel, The Standing Water, out on Amazon. And uh, my latest book is this little one here, uh, as you mentioned, Church Curiosities, Strange Objects and Bizarre Legends. Um, I should just say, actually, that it's, it doesn't include Ireland, but it includes uh, the whole of Britain. So Wales, Scotland, England and some of the smaller islands around the coast as well. So, you know, what, how did you first get started in the study of rural folklore? Well, um, I I guess I've always been quite interested in this sort of thing ever, ever since I was a child, you know, when I was a child, I loved um, ghost stories and things like this. I used to badger my parents to buy me books about ghosts and then I'd be, (laughs) I'd be too scared to go to sleep at night. (laughs) Um, And I I guess I've always had this, this interest. It might have um, waxed and waned a bit over, the years but mm-hmm. when I began writing my my novel The Standing Water that was in a sort of rural setting it's like a very dark gothic novel in a rural setting in 1980s northern England and 
I started putting in, you know, legends and weird bits of folklore um, to like spice up the novel, you know, some of which I'd actually heard uh, people talking about, some of which I, I invented myself or I'd learned in some other ways. And um, I think that kind of rekindled my my interest in all this sort of thing. And when I, you know, got on Twitter and started kind of promoting the book, I was tweeting a lot of folklore and stuff. And but the kind of folklore and myth, it almost took over in a way. You know, I became kind of quite obsessed with it and um, all, all the stuff I was learning. And then I started my blog. I should have mentioned I'm a blogger as well. Um, you can see my blog at davidcastleton.net. And that's about kind of, the gothic, folklore, fake lore, the weird and quirky, uh, and that also kind of deepened my interest. So um, I, I guess that's kind of where it came from, really. Yeah, I found it interesting how easy it is to spread folklore now um, mm. with the internet being around. I think mm. that it's really rekindled a lot of people's interests with how easy it is to you know, spread more little-known legends. Yeah. Yeah, people people love it as well. I mean, there's quite a big um, folklore community on Twitter, and you yeah, know, perhaps it's becoming more popular. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. Um, I've been impressed by how many you know, interesting little tidbits I see every day browsing through Twitter, mm. um, and it's been you know particularly interesting with how much fake lore has begun picking up. Fake lore is an interesting one, and what is folklore? What's fake lore? What are the borders between? You know, yeah. Yeah. There was an interesting um, you know, talk I heard on Slenderman many years back with yeah. how quickly that spread and how that kind of has become an actual bit of folklore now. Yeah, you know, I mean, folklore can, can morph into folklore sometimes, yeah. Yeah, I found that really yeah. interesting. Mm. Um, so I was curious, uh, you already mentioned it a little bit, um, but did mm. you do in-person interviews um, for your book? Um, no, I, 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 I didn't. I... Um, I mean, the book is, it, it takes in quite a big area, as I said before. It's oh, like certainly. Right, right from like the Orkney Islands down to the Channel Islands, all over England, Scotland and Wales. And unfortunately, you know, because of budgets, there's no way I could have travelled around the UK and oh, certainly. You know, visited all these sites. You know, I mean, transport's expensive in the UK and there's no way oh, I could yeah. have done it. Um, so, so a lot of it was me kind of reading old kind of folklore books, things like this. So kind of folklore books had sort of dug up that were from the seventies, <laughs> eighties, and they were quoting like much earlier books. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I mean, some of it's from my own knowledge as well, you know, uh, just like tales I heard growing up, things like that. I put some of those in, you know, local legends from where I am in Yorkshire in the north of England. Um, uh, but I didn't, I didn't actually do in-person interviews. Some of the secondary sources I used did make use of in-person interviews, but I, I, I didn't do any myself. Yeah, I was really curious about it um, because just about a week after I read your book, um, when I was when I was out doing an animal call of all things, um, mm-hmm. a person came up to me while I was looking for the animal I was catching, and you know, said to me, "Did you know that you know this vulture trying to get is right off of Ghost Road?" <laughs> and, you know, without any prompting whatsoever, he started telling me a very classic story of a ghost mm. car that used to come around. Oh, in yeah. The 60s. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was yeah. something that you know always struck me about rural folklore in particular. Just you know, yeah. stories pop up where you least expect them. Uh, I mean, I just love all that <laughs> stuff. It's like um, it's interesting how folklore evolves as well. Like 
um, we, we used to have kind of um, a lot of legends in the UK about like headless riders of horses mm-hmm. and things like this and ghostly horse riders and it seems to have updated now to ghostly bicyclists. <laughs> That's <laughs> fantastic. It's a, similar, it's a very similar kind of myth, you know, but it's, you know, the horse has been replaced with a bicycle. <laughs> I would love to hear a headless bicyclist yeah. story. <laughs> Maybe next it will be headless guy on an electric scooter or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. Yeah. That's definitely a story I want to hear. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the more interesting uh, mm. stories that kind of fascinated me. Well, there, there's actually a couple, um, but when you're talking about older sources, mm. um, there was a story about, is it the Rudston monolith? Yeah. Um, that an antiquarian writing about it was talking about how it sunk deep into the earth as deep as it was high and that skulls were yeah. found. And yeah. that was just utterly fascinating to me how yeah. something that, you know, potentially came from, you know, perhaps an early sacrificial site, then mm. turned into the devil's lance sinking into the ground. Yeah. 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 And, um, you know, another thing that really you know, stuck with me was the prevalence of Robin Hood stories. Mm. You know, the mm. idea mm. of this is the grave and yeah. know, this is the grave of little John. Oh, we measured the yeah. corpse and <laughs> this yeah. How, yeah. You know, how high he was. And yeah. It it was interesting to me how there was such a focus on, you know, we know this is true because we measured it or yeah. we looked into it and how, you know, the later the truth of these stories, you know, whether or not they were actually true becomes secondary to mm-hmm. the idea of, you know, this is the symbolism of it. This is yeah. you know, what it means to us. Yeah. And so do you feel that, you know, stories like these, are more important for their you know, symbolic value now rather than the potential veracity of them? Yeah, definitely. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, the, the whole thing about folklore is, um, I, I don't want to sound too cynical, but you, you're sort of dealing with things which probably aren't literally true. You know? Yes. <laughs> so, um, so, so it's all about the kind of like stories people weave around something, you know, and like you said, the symbolism in those stories and it's it's just interesting because you do get very similar symbolism cropping up, you know, in different parts of the world and mm-hmm. across the uh, the ages, you know, like like you know giants as you were mentioning. There's like so much giant folklore. Um, and there's that a lot here in the UK, but you know you can find it all over the world, you know. Oh, certainly. Um, the, you know the the idea that giants kind of were responsible for creating certain landmarks, or um, we've we've got a myth here that. Uh, giants built Stonehenge and things like this. <laughs> uh, in America, actually, I um, I did a, a blog post about um, the, the Cardiff giant. Have you heard of that one? Oh, yes. <laughs> that, that's a really interesting story. That is like a fake um, giant that was meant to be one of the, the Nephilim from the Bible. We still um, actually get yeah. people arguing that he was real. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>, seriously. <laughs> um, I think that it was about uh, six years ago, there was a big push towards giants are real and they have double rows of teeth. And right, okay. it was yeah. the wildest um, sort of fascination that there was a show on History Channel about it. <laughs> right, it okay. was, yeah, it was absolutely yeah. wild. Um, there were quite a few of these giants like uh, supposedly dug up across the States. Yeah. Um, 
and um, mostly there was some kind of con man behind it who was making a, a lot of money out of it. Um, but yeah. but it, it does go back to this old myth that once giants roamed the earth. And, you know, it's not just in the Bible. You've got like the Greek giants and Norse giants. And, you know, and King Arthur the giant. <laughs> yeah, King Arthur's presented as, as a giant sometimes. Or Bram the Blessed, he's a hero from Celtic folklore who mm-hmm. um, is, a, is a giant. Uh, his head supposedly was buried near the Tower of London uh, <laughs> until King Arthur dug it up unwisely. <laughs> so, so yes, it's, it's, it's quite kind of deep, you know. And this symbolism is, um, you, you know, I think it probably does say something about uh, how our minds work and the human condition and all of this. I mean, in, in folklore studies now, it's kind of a bit unfashionable to have these kind of archetypes and these sort of, you know, things patterns across cultures but I, I do I do think they exist sometimes that you know I think you know the similarities are maybe a bit too striking to be dismissed you know yeah I, I think that the um the cult of the head as well yeah, yeah was yeah. uh very interesting in how that you know persisted from you know earlier um possibly Celtic origins yeah you know through to if you drink from this skull then your chest yeah. ailments will go away <laughs> um, <laughs> That was one of my favourite stories from the book, the um, the, the Saint's School. You yeah. Drank, uh, you drank from it, the waters of a holy well. <laughs> it was yeah. utterly fascinating to me that that persisted up through 1947. Yeah. yeah. Just the idea of something lasting, you know, that far into modernity. And yeah. it just really blew my mind. Um, that and the uh, tale of Cromwell's head oh, yes. <laughs> being verified in the 1960s. Um, yeah. Like that just really blew my mind that the provenance of something like that could you know, survive for so long. I know, it's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, it's just amazing. Yeah, I, I actually didn't know that story until I started researching the, the book because, you know, I, I did history at university and I studied mm-hmm. quite a lot about Cromwell and the Civil War, but <laughs> no, nobody mentioned the fate of his head. <laughs> I think it would stick in the mind a lot better if people did. It would, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, just that is a riveting story. And, mm. you know, the idea that you can actually go out and see these sorts of things for yourself is yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah. It really drove home just how much, you know, the world around you is still connected through to the deep past. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a bit of a kind of obsession of mine that you can walk around and there's all this stuff all around you connected with history, connected with myth, you know, connected with various people. And most people just wander around and they've got no idea. You know, I mean, I, I used to have hardly any idea of this stuff, but but it, it, it just like enrich your experience if you're walking around a city or a town and Oh yeah, that's the place where <laughs> Cromwell's head's buried. Or, <laughs> oh yeah, that, that's where church where there's a sword that supposedly slew a dragon. It, I think it does uh, make make life more interesting somehow. You know, uh, one of the like truly wild stories that was entirely new to me, and you know, definitely will stick with me from some for some time was the idea of the Dane skins. Oh yes, yeah. That you know there could be human skin at the doors of these churches yeah yeah and that is um that was entirely new to me and that's quite the yeah. vivid image <laughs> yeah yeah uh, some of them it really is human skin uh i think because i mean i should just maybe mention what 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 a dane skin is yes. so it's um 
you know, when the Vikings were raiding England and the local population captured the Vikings, sometimes they'd actually skin the, the person and nail up their skin to a, a door, often a church door of all places. Uh, so we've, we've got these like legendary doors in certain English churches, which supposedly are, are covered with the skin of a Danish pirate. And most of them actually aren't. Most of them are actually cow skin. But one or two actually are. <laughs> They've actually tested them and they actually are the skins of human beings. And they, they can like narrow it down to say, OK, it was a guy with blonde hair, which might you know, indicate Scandinavian origin, you know. Um, so it's, it is quite incredible that for hundreds of years, actual human skins have been on church doors. Yeah, the notion of a human, like a book bound in human skin, you know, that's something yeah, that yeah. to a certain degree you might expect. But yeah. the idea of human skins on churches was something yeah. entirely new to me. And yeah. the fact that some have been verified is just yeah. absolutely wild. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, another thing that I found um, you know, particularly interesting mm-hmm. was uh, the burial practices mm-hmm. that there are, you know, so many crypts around, mm-hmm. you know, some that we know of, some that still are being explored to this day. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that people realize just uh, quite how much is beneath the surface. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the idea of people sheltering in them throughout World War Two. Yeah, so yeah, quite the eerie image. I mean, I, I think where people sheltered, they didn't. It, they didn't actually have bodies in those parts. Or if they did have bodies, they were securely in in tombs or whatever. Uh, they weren't actually sheltered amongst the skulls and bones. But you're right; it's still it's still an eerie image, definitely. Yeah, yeah. you've got to kind of go down to the underworld among the dead to shelter from the, the bombs. Yeah, but on a lighter note, with death. Um, I will say that the section of interesting epitaphs is something that definitely made me want to search a little bit closer through the cemeteries around here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you wrote yeah. about the first woman who was eaten by a tiger. <laughs> oh, um, killed by a tiger. I'm not sure. Yes. She was <laughs> I'm sure the tiger got some. <laughs> I'm sure he got some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was um, a lady called Hannah Toynoy in um, Malmesbury um, in the west of England. And she was a, a barmaid at a, a tavern. And one day um, a travelling menagerie came and set up in the tavern's courtyard. And Hannah couldn't resist teasing the tiger. And she just teased it too much. And <laughs> the tiger reacted. And she was the first person in England to be killed by a tiger. Yeah. Which is written on a gravestone. I mean, that deserves to be remembered. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. It's a strange claim to fame, but Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. What got you interested in the epitaphs? Um, did you know some of those t- before going in? Um, yeah, I knew, I knew about some of them because I, I, I just love reading these books full of obscure, quirky facts, you know, and little bits of folklore and things like this. So I, I was aware of some of these weird epitaphs, yeah. <laughs> and um, others uh, I discovered as as I was writing the book. But I, I, I just love all that stuff. I'm kind of a bit morbid maybe and I love I love churchyards and cemeteries and graves and epitaphs and all this so it was um you know because I mean death tells us a lot about life you know um oh certainly how, how we bury people how we you know design tombs how the epitaphs we use it it tells us a lot about um the, the culture in which that person was was buried you know um so um yeah I find all this stuff fascinating 
you know, it's a pity that the pyramid tombs fell out of style. Yeah, should bring them back, you know. Uh, one of the things that was the, you know, probably my favorite, um, mm. you know, out of all of the things that you wrote about in your book, mm. was the idea of the reindeer dance. Yeah, that was such an utterly wild tradition. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, such a vibrant image. Um, yeah, would you mind telling us a bit about that? Yeah, well, um, there's a village called Abbots Bromley in Staffordshire. Um, so it's like the sort of West Midlands, I guess, of, of England. And um, once a year, they, they have a dance where um, they, they go into their local church and on the church wall are six um, sets of reindeer antlers and six men like kind of put them on the shoulders and they tour the village and the surrounding countryside. And every now and then, when they maybe get to a farm or pub or manor house or something, they, they do this dance. Uh, they're accompanied by an accordionist and a guy with a little triangle who like pings his triangle and um, a, a man dressed up as Maid Marian. So cross-dressing is quite a folkloric tradition here in England. <laughs> and uh, there's a um, fool and uh, a hobby horse, I think. And um, so this like little ensemble, they just tour the village all day and the surrounding area. They, they start at 8am and don't finish until 8pm. And... Um, Yes, it's, it's an interesting tradition. We we know it dates back at least as far as the late 1600s. I think there's a reference to it in something like 1676. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a, a book which was published. And someone annotated this book. And it was found that um, uh, from his annotations, it had probably been going on before the Civil War, because he mentioned seeing it before the Civil War. So that dated back to the, uh, the earlier 1600s. Beyond that, we don't know. Um, it might be um, really ancient. Mm-hmm. It might be not so ancient. Uh, the reindeer horns themselves have been dated back to about um, 1065. But it is possible that they might have replaced an older set of horns. Also possible that the horns uh, were used for something else before the dance. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we really don't know how, how ancient it is. But it's... Um, like you say, it's it's a really strange and fascinating custom. Yeah, it's just yeah. such an eerie image and yeah. um, such a resonant image. It yeah. was making me think of the old movie The Wicker Man. <laughs> it's with the it is a bit horse. Wicker Man, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's a bit, it, a bit folk horror. Yeah, although if you, if you watch the videos on YouTube of the dance, and it's actually kind of fun. People don't don't sort of take it too seriously. Not too kind oh, of, it's just brilliant. Not though. Or eerie. Yeah. But, but you're right, it's very kind of evocative of, you know, that sort of thing, isn't it? Sort of some ancient pagan past, whether it is pagan or not. Yeah, I mean, the hobby yeah. horse, the cross-dressing, the, yeah. Yeah. there's just a lot going on there and a lot to dig yeah. into. It, is. Um, yeah. It's yeah. definitely something I would like to learn more about. Yeah. Um, one of the uh, other stories that you uh, talk about that just really touched me a bit and likely would touch anybody reading about it uh was the story about tiddles the church cat oh yes yeah. <laughs> you know the the stories that in their surrounding animals and mm-hmm. um how much they you know meant to the churches yeah. i thought that that was just 
very sweet <laughs> and just a nice little reminder that uh, yeah. no matter how far back you look, you know, people were still fond of these creatures. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I just thought that that was, that was quite sweet. But um, out of all of these, you know, what was, what did you have the most fun researching? Oh, it's, it's a really difficult question. Um, <laughs> I, I, I did like the, the ceremonies, actually, mm-hmm. um, the, the chapter on strange ceremonies, because some of the ceremonies are just so weird, <laughs> just so <laughs> bizarre. But um, I, I did have quite a lot of fun, you know, researching that one. Like um, there's, there's a ceremony in London where um, there's a, a church which is right by the River Thames and some of its boundaries kind of go out over the Thames. And every few years, churches tend to have this tradition where people go around the boundaries and they like hit landmarks with sticks. So everyone remembers the boundaries. OK, but how do you do that on water? Well, um, what they do, they get a load of people on a boat, go out into the Thames and uh, they get a, you know, um, they're accompanied by these kids from this school, which has a connection with them. And um, at a certain point in the ceremony, one of the clergymen like grasps the ankles of the smallest boy, <laughs> holds him upside down over the river. And the boy's got a little stick and he beats water. <laughs> <laughs> and he um, therefore like asserts the church's you know, territory over the river. And that's just so weird. It's just, I mean, I don't know how they do it with like health and safety laws, but somehow, <laughs> somehow they do it, you know. Or um, you know, like you said, the reindeer dance, really bizarre custom or um, what else? Um, trying to think of some of the other strange customs now um i really liked the yeah. uh clowns having to paint clown service. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so so um there's a yearly clown service in one of the churches in london where the clowns come along in full makeup uh to commemorate um joseph grimaldi the like one of the first uh influential clowns and yeah and there's another church in london where they keep these eggs <laughs> <laughs> which they, when they become a clown, they have to paint an egg with their, their makeup because every clown has a different type of makeup. I, I think it used to be eggs. Nowadays, it's like these kind of oval stones, but they look like eggs. So I like thinking of them as eggs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah each, each clown has to paint it with his or her unique makeup. They're kept in this church, and it's just just so bizarre. You, you know, you couldn't make it up. No, I... I'm acquaintances with a professional clown, and I think that she actually went to the clown service one year. (laughs) (laughs) I remember her talking about how excited she was to get to go to the UK and Mm. the clown traditions there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I just think that's brilliant. I mean, there's so many things that it would just be amazing to get to see in person. And it's just a shame that your book came out when we can't travel. (laughs) I know, I know. But, well, hopefully... It won't last forever. But yeah, that, that is part of a point of a book. You can actually um, go and see these these places. And, you know, I mean, I mean, OK, like churches do tend to be locked most of the time, I think. Yes. But I think there's someone you can call who's got a key or something. So, yeah, you can actually go around and visit, visit them and see these artifacts for yourself. Yeah. yeah, I think that it would make an absolutely amazing guidebook to just you know, get to travel around and see as many things as you possibly can. Yeah. It, and the illustrations um, throughout the book, you know, the actual photographs of many of the mm. places were truly stunning. Mm. Um, it was, you know, really nice to get to see some of these, you know, old artifacts. The pictures mm. were just wonderful. 
Mm. You know, um, just one of the other things that I was curious about, um, and just another thing that goes back into deep history, was that you wrote a bit about the sacred fish and sacred eels um, oh, yeah. that exist throughout wells. And I thought that that was, um, you know, really interesting that, you know, fish for a time were even used for divination. Mm-hmm. There was a um, holy well in Wales called uh, St. Sibby's Well. Mm-hmm. And um, there used to be like a holy eel that lived in this well. And uh, what would happen if, if you came to a well with some sort of health problem? Uh, you could stand in the waters and if the eel wrapped itself around your legs, it was a sign you were likely to get better. If the eel didn't wrap itself around your legs, then uh, you probably wouldn't get better. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know exactly when they stopped having the <laughs> holy eels in the well. But, uh, yeah, that was a, definitely a medieval tradition. Yeah. Well, then you definitely won't get better because there's no wheels to wrap around you. No, no, there's no point in going anymore. <laughs> uh, there was um, one well story where it was uh, particularly focused on eye ailments. Mm-hmm. And if I recall correctly, um, the saint was upset that somebody had complimented her. So yeah. she ripped out her eyes. Yeah. <laughs> which meant that if you had eye ailments, you have to drink from this well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was um, St. Triduana. Um, so um, her, her well is in Edinburgh. And yeah, apparently a, a prince, I think it was, complimented her beautiful eyes. And she responded by having the, the eyeballs gouged out and sent to him. <laughs> so, what a fantastic okay, story. I love my eyes so much. Here you are, you know. <laughs> um, so um, yeah. Um, and um, yeah, so, so not surprisingly, after that story, her um, um, well is meant to be good for eye troubles. You know, if you've got eye troubles, go and wash your eyes in the well and it should get better. It's just an utterly fantastic story. Yeah. <laughs> I, I absolutely loved that. Mm. But yeah, I was really struck by your book. I absolutely loved the stories in it. Mm. I absolutely want to visit the places um, that mm. you mentioned. And um, as a result of it, I... You very eagerly signed up for your newsletter and oh, thank you very much. around your blog. Yeah. Um, could you tell us a bit about that, um, what you're offering people now? Yeah, so the, the blog is um, called um, the, the Serpent's Pen. It can be found on my website, davidcastleton.net. And um, I, I try and post every two weeks, and they're quite substantial, meaty blog posts, you know. So uh, I, I maybe don't post as often as some people, but when I when I do post, you get a good solid blog um and i I write about uh, the gothic uh kind of weird bits of gothic history folklore Mm -hmm. folklore um kind of maybe the darker sides of like art and literature and things like this so i've got some kind of strange stories about um like dante gabriel rossetti the pre-raphaelite painter um who had his wife dug up from highgate cemetery because he he put his book of poems in a coffin and buried it with his poems and then <laughs> seven years later changed his mind and had a double <laughs> again. <laughs> um, some stuff about Charles Dickens and Edgar Allan Poe and uh, um, yeah and just just a lot of stuff about folklore, gothic stuff, weird stuff, cemeteries, all this type of thing. Um, so so yeah if you pop over, sign up to the newsletter, you'll get a blog 
post to your inbox every couple of weeks. And uh, I, I am actually writing a, a book of short stories that I intend to give away with the, um, the uh, newsletter as well. So um, fantastic. So, so uh, if um, so, when I've got this book finished, whenever that is, hopefully not too too long. Um, when you sign up, you'll get a copy. Or if you've already signed up, I'll I'll send you a link where you can get a free copy. So uh, that's the plan. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Then we definitely yeah. do have more writing to look forward to from you. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm actually working on it now. I did it, did a bit this morning. So. Uh, oh, fantastic! Yeah. That's really great news. Yeah, and the, the stories themselves will be um, kind of infused with folklore and um, the gothic as well. Yeah. Well, that sounds like it'll be right up our readers' alleys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll let you know when it's out. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah. But thank you so much for coming by today. Yeah, and my pleasure. Yeah. I can't wait to hear other people reading your book and what they make of it. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, hope, I hope people enjoy it. Yeah. I certainly think that they will. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you.